Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke. And if we got, with God's help, if you would turn your hearts and uh, give your attention to the reading of his word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him, sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Well, having taught his disciples all these sayings, as Luke says here in the, the Sermon on the Plain, you remember those sayings that they should love their enemies, that they should do good to those who hate them. Uh, that their care for others shouldn't uh, be only extended to those that are like them and to their own circle around them, to those that love them in their return. Uh, in return, they should love anyone as they have opportunity to. Luke now moves on to a series of episodes that, Je that show Jesus doing that very thing, uh, that show Jesus Christ 
as the perfect fulfillment of all of the teaching that he has just been given to his disciples. And we're going to see him over and over again uh, observing that he does not just associate with people that are like him. He doesn't remain aloof from, from the unwashed masses and the way that uh, the Pharisees are known for doing. He enters the fray and he shows them what it looks like to love friends, but also to love enemies, to love insiders and outsiders, to love Jews and Gentiles, to love people that probably looked a lot like him and people that didn't look anything at all like him. So we're going to look at two of these episodes today, uh, two miraculous accounts, and they have something in common in that what is emphasized in these two episodes is not the miracle itself. The thing that stands center stage in the text here isn't the miracle. That's not what wows. That's not what captures our attention. That's not what Luke primarily wants us to, to, to see. It's what stands behind the miracle that captures our attention. Look with me first at verses 1 to 10. You find this centurion, and he is there with a, with a sick servant. It's a very dire uh, sort of situation. The servant is at the point of death. If you read Matthew's account, uh, he fill, helps fill in the gaps for us here. It, it says that he is paralyzed. It says that he is suffering terribly. Now, the thing that grabs your attention here is just how earnest the centurion is in finding help for this lowly servant, someone that, that works for him. And that in terms of the, the various echelons that are at work within society, he's, he's way down there on the, the social stratosphere. Now, we could look at this and we could think, well, we could have very uh, pessimistic uh, perspectives. And we can say, well, you know, the centurion is only looking out for this man because he doesn't want to lose him in his employ, that he, 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 he wants him to go on working for him. Well, that, that, that could have been the case perhaps, but if you, if you look here at the story, I don't think that's the case. You have a picture of someone who as far as the servant is concerned, is at the brink of death. He's about to die. Human, humanly speaking, his chances are next to nothing. In, in the Roman world, no one would have blinked an eye if this master just put the servant out of his misery and went on to replace him, found someone else that could have uh, done his business. But Luke here, paints this picture of a centurion who is sincerely concerned about this man's well-being and he goes to considerable lengths to try to get him help. Now, the fact that the man is a centurion supplies a critical part of the, the context here. The Jewish elders are going to go to Jesus and they're going to, to say, he loves our nation implying that this is something remarkable. Uh, this is something that's out of the ordinary and you don't typically expect out of someone like a centurion. 
Uh, Jesus is going to later on draw this distinction between the man and everyone else in Israel. So everything here is telling us this man is a Gentile. And that, at least in part, helps to explain why the man doesn't go himself to seek out the Lord, he sends this envoy instead, elders of the Jews, people that are respected in the community, people that can hopefully get a hearing with Jesus and represent the centurion well. So there, there's this unspoken question that is running through the text. The question goes something like this, what can a Gentile what, what can someone who is, who's not a part of God's covenant community expect out of Jesus? Expect out of the Messiah? Will uh, this great prophet and miracle worker, will Jesus Christ deign to show his grace to an outsider, to a man like this? So what do the elders do? This is very interesting. They go and they lay out their case uh, in front of Jesus. And Luke, he labors to stress just how seriously they go about this, how ardently they, they go to bat and argue on the centurion's behalf. What's their, they, first, you see, they plead with him earnestly. What is their main argument? He is worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him. And then they provide two things in defense of that contention. They, they lay out his resume. They say, well, first, he's a man who loves our nation. And, and that probably is unique for uh, someone like a centurion. It's probably not uh, the typical um, situation when you think about a Roman occupation that they would love the nation of Israel. So even taking into account that the elders of the Jews are putting their, their best foot forward and trying to represent this man as best as they can, this is unique. Secondly, they say, well, he is the one who built us our synagogue. Why would a, why would a centurion build a Jewish synagogue? Well, we don't know. We don't know what his motivation is, and the, the text doesn't tell us here. He may have been a, some, someone like a God-fearer, someone that accepted many of the Jewish beliefs and uh, practices and supported the local synagogue. He may have just been someone that wanted to help promote stable community, in the place where he was stationed as a centurion. Whatever the case though, the Jewish elders have been benefactors. They've been benefactors of this man's generosity to them and they live in this society that is structured around this whole idea of, of patronage and reciprocity and social indebtedness. And so they go uh, to lobby on his behalf. When you see them going in front of Christ, um, don't think that that's necessarily a representation of their own faith, of their own trust in Jesus themselves. They're doing the centurion a favor as, as much as they are any, anything else. But remember the crux of their argument. He is worthy. 
He is worthy. Hold that in your mind. That's their line of reasoning as they go before the, the Savior. And yet still, the Lord Jesus goes with them. He goes. Now, while they are on their way, traveling to uh, the centurion's home, the centurion sends out a second envoy. And listen again to, to what he says. This time he sends out friends in verse six. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. You see the contrast, church. See, the, the servant, or, or uh, the, the second envoy uh, rep- represents the, the centurion's self-perspective, and he begs to differ with what the Jewish elders have said about him. He says, I am not worthy. Now, how, how did he come to that conclusion? How did he come to believe that about himself, that he was not fit to go to Jesus or to have Christ come into his own household? Now, again, the, the text doesn't tell us. We'd love to know, but it, it doesn't tell us. We could think about passages like Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter talks about the difficulties of uh, Jewish-Gentile relations and the difficulties and the tensions of exercising ho- hospitality between the two groups. Uh, Peter talks about how it was considered unlawful to, to receive Gentiles into Jewish homes and, and, and ver- vice versa. So it's possible the centurion may be thinking along these lines, that, that Jesus is kind of like this, this members-only kind of club. And if you are not like him, if you are not a Jew, then you don't get privileged access in the way people of his own nation do. You have to have a certain kind of background or pedigree. Is it possible that the Lord really has brought him to some kind of understanding of his own sinfulness and and depravity and he's watched Christ from from afar and he's heard uh, others give testimony of who Jesus is and he really feels it in the bosom of his soul that he is not worthy to come before the Lord. We We can't say for sure, but we can see the simple confession. We can see the simple confession that he makes and that he explains his rationale in those terms. He says, I did not presume to go to you in the first place. I didn't think I was deserving over against that plea that the the elders make in front of Christ. He didn't try to send them to try to somehow twist Jesus's arm or pull rank on the Lord Jesus and say, well, you know, I'm a centurion. Uh, so, so come to my house. And, and, and you know, he, he was a man who, insofar as the, the rest of the world was concerned, uh, did have uh, some measure of clout. He would have been someone socially respected and feared uh, in, in, in many ways. But this is the critical thing. When that man, who may have been respected by many other people, 
When he looks at himself and he measures himself against Christ, he says of himself, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not presume to go out of a sense of his own unworthiness. So his estimation of himself is very different than others around him. It's very different than even the Jewish elders. He may be a centurion, but he feels his inferiority when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, consider your your own estate. However great you may be in the eyes of the world, however, uh, however many wonderful things others may say of you, however many titles you may bear, who do you reckon yourself to be? When it comes to you standing before the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who do you count yourself to be? What kind of self-evaluation do you render at the end of the day? What does your heart say when others begin to sing your praises? They perhaps say, in so many words, He's worthy. Look at the man. Look at his gifts. Look at his talents. Look at his rank. Look at whatever it may be. What does your heart say about who you are before Christ? I am not worthy. This man says, brings to to mind the words of, of John the Baptist, the straps of his sandals. I am not worthy to untie we, we live in a world today that promotes the very opposite. We have to say this. We have to recognize this about the culture uh, that we live in, that we, we live in a culture that exhorts us, that encourages us to practice the very opposite, uh, to practice self-affirmation, to say of ourselves we are worthy to look ourselves in, in, in the, the mirror and to, to rehearse our inherent virtue, our inherent worth, our goodness. Well, the gospel declares the truth about man. It tells us who we are before God. In Jeremiah, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul said, I know nothing good dwells within me. That is, in my flesh. And that is a man who is wrestling with his estate, even as a redeemed man, what he sees to be true of himself. In the old man, in the flesh, the passions of of the flesh, he, he, he still recognizes this unworthiness in him. He, he could look at himself and describe uh, in, in, in one sense his wretchedness uh, before the Lord. He said, I'm not worthy. Now, the marvelous thing, when we look at this centurion and we see the way he reckons himself, the way he thinks about who he is 
in the light of Christ is that that doesn't prevent him from grabbing hold of Christ. It doesn't prevent him from, from taking hold of the Lord Jesus in faith. He knows he doesn't deserve Christ's touch, but that doesn't cause him to shrink back to the point that he just slumps his shoulders and walks away from this powerful, saving Christ. His faith is stirred into action. And why is that? Well, he knows that Christ's coming, Christ's power, Christ's ability to enter into his life, to the, to the life of his servant, it doesn't rest on his merit. Isn't that wonderful? It doesn't rest on his worthiness. It rests on the merit of Christ. It rests on his person, not on who the centurion is. Not on what his performance is, not on who he is in society. And so he is he's able to, to, to say with that, that tax collector who, who stood off at a far distance. Here's another man who stands off at a distance. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, he recognizes who he is, but he also recognizes who God is. He knows who God is is. God be merciful to me. This is a gospel picture here. The man looks to Christ and so he says, but say the word and and let my servant be healed. But say the word. No sign is demanded of Christ, just simple faith in the one who spoke the world into existence. God said, let there be light and there was light. He just said the word, and so it was. In the Old Testament, Psalm 107, it says, God's people cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And that same power is vested in Christ incarnate. It's vested in Christ the word. And so his faith is stirred into action. In fact, he even has the boldness to compare himself to Christ. He says, I know a thing or two about authority. And he goes on to tell Jesus a story. He, 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 he says, uh, in fact, it's, it's not exactly what you would expect on, on a first reading. He, he says, I too am a man set under authority. Now, you would think that he would say, if anything, I too am a man of authority. You know, I, I know what it is to be able to bark orders and, and make things happen and get things done. But he doesn't say that. He says, I too am a man set under authority. In other words, when the centurion speaks to those who are under his charge, what happens? He's got the whole backing of the Roman Empire standing behind him. The weight of the state's arm is all there, all the way up to the emperor. And the implication is that when he speaks, the state speaks. Well, it's from this this principle that he draws the parallel. He says, I too am a man set under authority. He recognizes something important about Jesus of Nazareth, 
that Jesus doesn't stand on his own. He doesn't stand as a man on his own authority. He doesn't stand as you or I do, as a man speaking to another man. He spoke with the full authority of the Father in heaven behind him. He spoke as one who was divinely commissioned. He spoke as one sent from heaven above. And so he continues the illustration. The centurion says, I have soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he is at once under authority, but he's also in authority over others. And when he gives his orders, they're going to be carried out. He, he knows that they will be uh, carried out. In the same way, he trusts that Christ's words are going to be carried out even when it comes to matters of life and death. Even when it comes to matters of life and death, and that is true when Jesus speaks from afar. Physical distance, a bodily absence, that is no hindrance to the Lord. That's not an obstacle to the Lord Jesus Christ. He can make the power of his presence known with just a word. Now, it is at this point we come to the climax of this story dramatically, In verse nine, it says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Do you see the teaching of the text here? Do you see what the Bible draws our attention to? It is not the miracle itself but what the miracle points to. It's the faith of the man who looks to Christ. Not even in Israel have I seen this kind of faith. Consider this church, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, marveled at the faith of a man. There's only one other place in the Bible that it says that Jesus marveled over something, and that's in Mark chapter six, where he marvels over the unbelief of those in his own hometown. And they said, is this not just the carpenter from Nazareth? He marveled over unbelief. Here he marvels over belief, over trusting faith in the power of Jesus That's what Luke wants us to see. That's where the emphasis lies. You notice that uh, the report of the the servant's healing is almost an afterthought here. It's there. Uh, You can see it in in verse 10. It serves to to confirm the fact that Christ did uh, heal the man, but it's not the center of attention. The center of attention is on the faith of the man. That's what aroused Jesus' attention. Jesus did not respond because he had this impressive envoy of religious officials uh, coming before him. He, he did not respond. He did not uh, heal the man because he had given so much money to build a synagogue. 
He certainly did not respond because of his worthiness. He responded because of faith. He responded because the man lifted up his eyes to Christ. He said, you are able, you can rescue. And Jesus answered, Jesus answered. None of the rest is what this turns on, simple faith in the person and power of Jesus Christ. And you see, you see the, the thread that maybe in one respect has been faintly woven throughout this text now comes more prominently into view. This man who is a Gentile, uh, he trusts in the, the power of Jesus Christ in a way not even found in Israel. Not even God's covenant people possess this kind of faith. So we're beginning to see already Simeon's confession worked out. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You remember Peter after all of his confusion about what was clean and unclean about who could exercise hospitality with whom. God showed himself so powerfully to him and he said, truly I understand. God shows no partiality. Who does God show himself to? Everyone who fears him and does what is right. God shows no partiality. The centurion fears the Lord. He puts his faith in him and almost certainly he spoke better than he knew when he said, I too am a man set under authority. Almost certainly he did not have all of the details worked out when it came to Christ's sonship and all that Jesus was going to, to, to bring to pass, but he had something that most of the Jews didn't, and that's faith. That's trust in Jesus Christ. It was exemplary faith at that. So what does exemplary faith look like, church? What does this episode have to teach us about the nature of of faith. I want to just draw your attention briefly, scan over this passage again, and mention four things, four things we can observe. First, it takes what has been revealed of Christ as the basis of its confidence. It takes what has been revealed of Christ as the basis of its confidence. If you look at verse three, it says that the centurion had heard. He had heard about Jesus he had tuned in to what had been revealed of, of Christ's power, his person, his authority. And brothers and sisters, we have the full revelation of God in the scriptures about who Jesus Christ is. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He has spoken to us by his son. So what do you know of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith takes what has been revealed of him from heaven, which you hold in your hands in the scriptures and stands on that. It stands on the basis of divine revelation. Number two, it acknowledges one's own unworthiness. 
It acknowledges one's own unworthiness to receive anything from the hand of the Lord. Faith openly confesses uh, whatever your rank, whatever your achievements are, whatever other things may, uh, people may say about you, I am not worthy. And this is the first step of repentance. It's to, to look yourself in the mirror, spiritually speaking, the mirror of God's word. It's to see yourself as you really are. It's to be stripped of all of your pride and to humble yourself before the sight of the Lord. And yet it does not stop there. Number three, faith stretches forth to touch the Lord earnestly and sincerely, knowing that it's grace, not merit, that brings Christ close. Straight, faith stretches forth to touch the Lord earnestly and sincerely, knowing that it's grace, not merit, that brings Christ close. When the man or woman of faith finds themselves in need, they make their argument before the Lord, and they do so on the basis of God's character and not their own. We come saying, Lord, I am not worthy. I don't deserve your kindness. My sins are such that if you were to cast me out into outer darkness forever, you would be altogether righteous. You would be altogether pure and lovely. But I come appealing to you because I know who you are. I know that you're gracious. I know that you're kind. I know that you're merciful and loving and full of power and glory. And then number four, exemplary faith believes the word of Christ in the absence of what I'll call raw ingredients. It believes the word of Christ in the absence of raw ingredients. Faith does not need to see everything in place before it believes, before it begins to trust. We walk as followers of Christ by faith, not by sight. We fix our spiritual eyes on the power of God's word and the assuredness of his promises. And so even when you cannot see him, maybe you don't feel his presence close to you, you still trust him. You still believe, though you have not seen him, John says, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And of course, all of this is pressing us as the people of God, as, as, as Luke's audience, to ask ourselves, do we know this kind of faith? Yes, this is admirable faith. Yes, this is ex exemplary faith. But is it, is it a faith that we know? Is it a faith that we possess? And there, there's a wonderful uh, encouragement and a warning, in fact, but a wonderful encouragement at the end of Matthew's account of, of this episode where Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, Jesus is saying here, there will be many who join in that messianic banquet feast on account of their faith. There will be many 
who see their need and look to Christ. See him to be their all in all, the only one who is able to bring salvation to their souls. And you see how, how Jesus really, he, he makes the application for us. He shows us that this is speaking to far more than, than it is the, the healing of a centurion servant. This is talking about the kingdom of God. This is talking about eternity, the banqueting feast of God. And in the same way, there will be others who reject him. So on what side of the line do you find yourself today? Do you know that kind of faith? Now, you still with me? From there, we move to a town called Nain. This is about six miles southeast of Nazareth. Jesus is going in one direction. He's got a tremendous crowd that is following him. As they're on their way, just about to come to the city gate of this small town, they encounter another crowd, and they're going in the opposite direction. It's a funeral procession. They're headed out of the city, and they are about to bury one of their own. The situation again here is just incredibly tragic, and it's almost as if Luke Uh, writes his account, he gives the description of the situation in a way that is meant to purposefully uh, draw out just how difficult this is. is. Behold, um, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. You see the same kind of rhythm in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham and Isaac. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Except here, the son is already dead. He's already passed away. To make matters worse, as the text tells us, this woman is a widow. She has already made this journey once before. She's already walked out in front of the bier uh, with her, her husband's dead body behind her. The town people weeping and wailing all around her. Now she's doing it with her only son. Uh, Jesus tells us that it is a, a young man who has died. He would have been the only one uh, that, that was, he would have been the one that was counted on to provide for his parents in their latter years. This is not the way things are supposed to be in life. In fact, it's such a difficult picture, such a, an, an agonizing picture. Uh, the prophet Zechariah uses this to describe the kind of bitter, bitter sorrow that so many would experience on the day of Christ's crucifixion. He says, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And that's what you have here. You have a widowed woman. Now she's utterly bereft. She's bereft of her only son. They're all in mourning. You've got this dead young man lying on the, the bier behind. Jesus is too late, it would seem. Now, 
I said at the beginning of this, the keynote in both episodes is not the miracle itself. What is the keynote in this passage? Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion. He had compassion on her. He enters into her sadness. This is one of the threads that you can trace throughout the whole of Christ's ministry that he looks out across the crowds and he has compassion for them because he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd, that they're harassed and helpless. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem out of compassion, out of love. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And Jesus identifies with one woman out of two great crowds. Isn't that a beautiful picture here? So you kind of look at this scene from, from above. You have one enormous crowd, one decent-sized crowd, and Jesus sees one woman in her need. He identifies her, and he has compassion for her. He knows right where she stands, and he says to her, do not weep. Now, if you're going to go up to someone at a funeral and say, do not weep, you better have a really good reason to do so. If you don't have a good reason for saying something like that, those are some of the most heartless, uh, insensitive, cruel kinds of words that you can say. Of course, we know what this woman uh, doesn't know yet, that the one who is speaking is the resurrection and the life that he holds the power to death and Hades. He's the one in whom the promise of Isaiah 25 and verse eight is going to be fulfilled. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Jesus never says one word without just cause. Every word of God, the Bible says, proves true. He is the comforter. He's the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 61, come to bind up the brokenhearted, uh, to comfort all who mourn. Have you ever experienced that? The Lord Jesus himself drawing near to you to comfort you in your sadness and mourning, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. And so he draws near and he says to her with good reason, do not weep. And he does something that would have been even more shocking. He, he touches the beer. Now this is a, a kind of uh, open casket on which the body would be arrested in its, its funeral claws. There was no embalming in these days in this part of the world. And so funerals would have to happen almost immediately, uh, usually on the same day before the body started to, to decompose. And so you've got to understand that in touching the beer, Christ is making himself ceremonially unclean. 
he is crossing lines of ritual impurity. You can read about that later in Numbers chapter 19. But Jesus is, is doing something remarkable here as he draws near and he lays his hand on this beer that is holding the dead man's body, showing those tender mercies in visible, observable form, ministering to those who sit in the shadow of death. Now, one of the things that I find such an encouragement uh, in this passage is that whereas in the first episode, you have this man whose faith reaches out and uh, touches Christ. Uh, He pursues the Lord. Here, you have the Lord whose compassions reach out and touch the woman. And he does so without any uh, pleading or prompting on her part. What an encouragement that is. He knows her estate. He knows exactly what her needs are. And he cares for her so personally so powerfully, so perfectly. What a savior we have. Isn't it often the case uh, that the Lord inserts himself in our lives and shows his mercy and his grace when we haven't even been looking for it? What a state we would be in if the only time we ever knew the grace of the Lord was when we had asked for it, when we had prayed, when we had sought the Lord. But what a gracious God we have. And so Christ touches the beer and in a moment, the whole procession comes to a halt. You better believe that 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 happened when Jesus touches that beer. Everyone is standing, they're all watching him, and then he issues the the command. Young man, I say to you, arise, and in a word, death is defeated. Death is defeated. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. It's the very very same thing, the very same words we heard in the, the, the scripture reading this morning from Elijah. He gave him to his mother. What does that tell you? Well, the the woman here is as much or more a part of the story as as the son. His mercy, Christ's mercy toward her brings its own kind of healing in her life, just as much as it does with the young man. And then we see the crowd. Fear seizes them all. They glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. A prophet, and more than a prophet. One who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And there will be a day when everyone Every single one of us in this room who has believed on him, who has trusted in his saving, atoning work will be raised to everlasting life forever to live with him. You have a very small scale preview here in this story of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God will issue the command and death will be defeated. Now until then, brothers and sisters, we have this confidence that the same uh, compassionate Christ we see in these passages, this same Christ is with us in all of our trials. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's look to him with hearts of faith. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, we thank you this day. God, we praise your name that you have visited your people in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we exalt him. Lord, we give you the glory. We thank you that he holds the power of sin and death. Lord, that you raise the dead to life through faith in Jesus' name. And God, I thank you that while we have many reasons to mourn in this life that we don't do so as those without any hope. God, I pray that you would cause our, our, our spiritual eyes to look to you this day, that as we walk through the trials and troubles and afflictions of this life, that you would strengthen us with your grace. And God, that you would give us a confidence knowing that the Lord Jesus himself is with us, that we would not despair, that we wouldn't rely on ourselves, but that instead we would look to you who raises the dead. God, thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for the one who has the power to deliver us from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I, I pray, God, that you would grant that gift to so many more. God, that you would grant the gift of faith and repentance, even to those in this room who do not know you today. It's in Jesus' name that we ask, amen.